Hi, I'm Samir Kaji, and welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. On this week's episode, we're excited to bring you my conversation with Kanye Makubela, managing partner of seed stage firm Kindred Ventures. Before launching Kindred with his partner, Steve, Kanye served as partner at Collaborative Fund, where he was an early advisor to companies like Tala and Walker Company, and a board member at Buffer, Camina Financial, Spruce, and TrueLink. Kanye has also spent time as an operator, co-founding Heartbeat Health, and also previously ran growth at one block off the grid. I've been lucky to have so many conversations with Kanye over the last few years, and I've always found him to be one of the most thoughtful and insightful investors in the industry. And on today's show, we had a wide-ranging conversation that spanned from the implications of large firms like Sequoia and Greylock coming into the seed market, how seed funds compete given the higher level of competition, as well as his thoughts on where we are in the market cycle. Without further ado, let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. Well, it's great to have you on the show, and I'm excited about this conversation. You and I, I feel like when we've had our most fun, we've been just doing general jam sessions on what's going on in the market. You and I both know things have changed so dramatically, and it seems like everything's happening at warp speed. Let's zoom out for a second uh, first, and I want to distill into your methodologies later in this conversation. But yesterday, Greylock announces a $500 million extension to their current fund to invest in seed. We've seen Andreessen do it. We've seen Sequoia raise a seed seed fund, collectively over a billion dollars. Give me your visceral reaction, as well as your deconstructed, reflective view of what's happening, why such big firms are raising dedicated seed vehicles. Well, my visceral reaction is that it seems uh, reactive. Uh, for a handful of players, and I don't know which ones in particular. Uh, and it seems reactive because uh, there is comp- competition coming from downstream from them, from uh, other segments of the market, uh, and they have to figure out how to compete with it. They have to figure out how to storytell around it. And so that reactive piece is uh, manifesting, in my view, in uh, a lot of marketing. And so I think that there's a lot of marketing and maybe even reformatting to the public uh, what kind of investments a firm wants to do. And it's important to note that the first institutional round is sacred territory in venture capital. And the nomenclature around that round has ebbed and flowed over the last 20 years, but it's sacred ground. And it seems like there's some sort of new shape to that battle today as driven by downstream players. So that's the first uh, observation. The second observation is. I do think that the world feels like it's bifurcated, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this, but there's a world of consensus opportunity, and there's a world of non-consensus opportunity. And it's my view that the world of consensus opportunity is unbelievably, historically competitive, zero-sum, and will be priced to perfection over this period of time. And that there's a non-consensus world, which still warrants uh, discussion and observation. And the final thought that I have is uh, this feels to me like it's more like a structural shift than a secular, a cyclical shift, which is to say sometimes things are happening because it's a cycle and sometimes things are happening because it's a reformatting. And I genuinely believe this one is a reformatting. And I think that Part of it is actually going to change how founders engage with venture capitalists in many cases. And so I'm happy to talk about why there. So long story short, I think it's reactive. I think that there's sacred territory that there's a battle over. Uh, I think there's consensus and non-consensus. And I think that it's structural. I, I think those are all incredibly good thoughts. And, and I'd love to unpack a few of those. But before we do that, I look at the market today, and it feels much more amorphous from a capital standpoint, where you have investors of different types investing in boxes that historically haven't been invested by funds of that size or scope or even profile. And it does seem like it's part of this maturation of investing in technology. Sam Lesson had that article you know, about a month ago that really spoke to let's just drop venture from venture capital and just call it capital. And that is going to be this continuous secular shift, which you just mentioned. As you think about it, you're a seed manager, you're investing at your sacred ground is that first 
part of the, the capital stack. So first round of capital. As you see both competition coming from your seed peers, but also now downstream investors now doing this, what does it mean from a standpoint of a seed investor now reacting? And are there certain vulnerabilities that anybody coming to this market should think about? The first is this, Mir, which is that the line between being disciplined and being adaptive has been moving a little bit. And what I mean by that is uh, you want to create an internally consistent story and you want to have guardrails so that you know when you're deviating and you only want to deviate in rare cases, but you have to be able to deviate and you have to recognize that it's a market that moves fast and has always moved fast and you have to be adaptive to it. The adaptive side of the ledger, uh, I think, has a little bit more gravity in it now. And I think that more and more funds of all types are having to be pushed into the adaptive side of the ledger. And what that specifically means for seed funds is how they think about fund sizing, uh, how they think about ownership, how they think about pacing, how they think about winning is all in the balance today intensely. And it used to be the case over the last seven to eight years, I'd say, where there had sort of been a settled status quo around a 10% ownership, a settled status quo around a 45 to $150 million fund size, a settled status quo around a pacing of uh, two and a half to three and a half years. And there's pressure on all of those. And so a lot of funds have to think about whether they should shrink or scale. They have to think about whether they can command more ownership or less uh, because that sort of Goldilocks middle zone is under extreme pressure. So I think that's the first is the adaptive requirements are heavier now. And then the second is, as it relates to winning, I genuinely believe that entrepreneurs today uh, want something a little bit different. And this one, I'm not sure whether it's cyclical or secular, but entrepreneurs today have expressed the revealed preferences that they value speed, they value uh, transparency in process, they value uh, preparation in advance, they value uh, as little dilution as possible. Uh, and they value partnership, but where it used to be the case that they valued brand name and partnership first and everything second after that, that balance is shifting a little bit too. And so seed funds need to think about how to structure themselves in such a way as to make sure that they put themselves in a position to win. So what does that actually mean? Because I, I, I think about the market, and I do view it's incredibly bifurcated, and even within stages, it's bifurcated. But think about Andrews and Sequoia, Tiger, Kotsu. They're playing, you know, a different game. They're, in many cases, indexing the market, willing to pay up because they're underwriting to these outcomes that are, you know, a step function of what they used to be. And candidly, they have the opportunity to win the deals that are very consensus. So a gray lock can come in and put in $20 million in that first round. But those are a small subsection of the companies. Not everybody's going to get that. In fact, that's the 5% or maybe even lower than 5%. And then you look at the rest of the seed managers. If you're looking to play that game, you're going to lose, I feel. I just don't think if you're always going after this consensus where it's founder that's built a billion-dollar company, clear product, traction, plus everybody knows it needs to exist, very tough place to play. So as a seed manager... We, you and I have talked a little bit about this, but I see a lot of these seed managers. And within that, there's bifurcation in terms of people that lead checks, people that are, you know, lower, but low friction, specialists versus generalists. When I talk about vulnerabilities, as you think about adaptive, who needs to adapt most within that seed environment? Well, you mentioned, and I mentioned it too, this bifurcation. So maybe this is a good chance to talk about that because... That bifurcation is super, super, super important, and I think is maybe the the linchpin of uh, some of the dynamics that you're seeing play out and some of the choices that uh, all sorts of fund managers are going to have to make. And so the way that I see the consensus versus non-consensus story is we're 13 years into a historic bull market. There's enterprise SaaS has proven that it's an order of magnitude bigger uh, market cap potential per company than we had previously thought. The explosion of software opportunity across sectors like fintech and crypto and even traditional enterprise SaaS, but also 
dev tools and networks and, and some of these sectors has proven to be not only durable, but even more bullish than the most optimistic people a half decade ago thought. And so one of the distinguishing factors of consensus is simply sector. And there are certain sectors where, to put it in the cliche, software is eating the world. And it turns out it's a big world. Uh, there's another vector of consensus, which is important too, which is in founder type. And this one is a little bit more subjective and requires you know, a little bit more nuance. But to your point, uh, the founder that's spinning out of Stripe, uh, the founder that has already had a institutional investors back a previous company that had a decent outcome, um, the founder that is hyper well connected in, in, in the valley. These are consensus opportunities. And non-consensus is the opposite of both of those things. And so uh, sectors, and sector may mean geography uh, in some case too, uh, so it's a, as a lens, where there just hasn't been that much enthusiasm. And even there, those non-consensus sectors sometimes become consensus very quickly. I remember four or five years ago, we're investing in financial technology in Nigeria would have been seen as a non-consensus opportunity. And today it's eminently consensus. And you're seeing pricing and competition as intense as, as fintech infrastructure in, in Soma in San Francisco. Uh, but that's a place where there's sort of sector openness and there's, you're still early in the S-curve of the establishment of one of those sectors. And, and our friend Sam actually did make good reference to this in a thoughtful way, which was like, what are some of the weird, quirky areas? And, and the truth is, how long those quirky and weird areas stay quirky and weird is tightening over time as well. Uh, but there is still genuine opportunity in so-called deep tech. There is in synthetic biology and computational biology. There is still genuine opportunity at the early part of the S-curve in uh, plant-based food and or alternative proteins. There is still uh, opportunity in robotics and hardware. And that one is sort of a persistently non-consensus one because of how hard it is to execute. And so you can think of non-consensus by sector, and then you can think of non-consensus by founder too. And so first-time founders, uh, founders that have demographics that are atypical, founders that uh, have a story that, and by the way, in terms of atypical demographic, that's very mimetic, right? And so sometimes it can be a, a, a 61-year-old Intel veteran, but that's considered non-consensus because it's not a 22-year-old Stripe uh, you know, ex-employee. And so it's very mimetic how you think about the sort of founder profiles and so non-consensus. Now, one of my questions and one of the curiosities that I think we should at least put a pin in, if not talk about, is there's four quadrants, uh, right and consensus, wrong and consensus, right and non-consensus, wrong and non-consensus. And the best place to be is right and non-consensus. And the worst place to be is wrong and consensus. But the truth is, and this is where it gets interesting, in the very, very earliest stage, it's actually not four quadrants. It's actually a half. Because if you're right and you've paid a 50 versus an 11 versus a 7, the appreciation and the market caps and the terminal value of those companies is so high. And so being right is dramatically more important than being non-consensus and anything where the market cap potential is so, so, so high. And so as a result, what a lot of people are saying is, well, shoot, I'm going to optimize for being right. And if more people are likely to be right in the consensus bucket, I'd rather just chase. And if I have smaller ownerships and if I'm more likely to lose, I'd rather be in there. And other people have said, I want to try and be non-consensus and right. But being right increasingly feels like it's the thing that matters. Because if you catch a 1,000x or a 2,000x or a 500x, your fund is made in such a much more important way than how you ended up getting there. You know, it's interesting that you bring up the uh, the quadrant because I think that history has shown that if you're right and you're non-consensus, you've seen the best fund performance uh, pretty consistently. Now, the, the issue for a lot of managers is being non-consensus and wrong and now you're on island by yourself. And that's a really lonely place to be, especially when you're first building it. And in today's world where we've been on this now almost 14-year bull run, you can bet consensus, be right. And be, and when you are right, the right is exponentially bigger than it ever was. And you can pay prices that are much, much higher than they ever was, were. And so part of my like question has always been thinking about today's world and saying, 
are people looking at this in a way that is in conformance with where the world is today and that we will see these outcomes continue to be big? Or are we underwriting to an overly utopian view of what the market will be five years from now when some of these companies mature? And are we now underwriting to $10 billion exits versus what we used to think a billion dollar exit? And the math works if it's the $10 billion exit. You will still do extraordinarily well, even if you're paying 30, a 30 million pre. What is your view on risk right now? And do you feel like you as a seed investor are underwriting to this utopian world, which is very optimistic, but then there's the pessimists that say, well, no, this is only happening because we have capital abundance today which could dissipate based on these exogenous effects that we can't even control. And what happens then? For me, I have to underwrite to a billion. And that's because I have constraints with my fund model. And for the audience, what I'd say is internal consistency is the absolute most important thing. Can you create a spreadsheet where the math makes it possible for you to see three to five X net of fees with a reasonable set of assumptions around dilution, a reasonable set of assumptions around loss ratios, and ownerships that you can actually justify and that you can actually prove out. And if you can see your way to that all playing out, then you're in good shape. The way that we see that playing out is on $1 billion outcomes. And so as a result, we're very ownership sensitive. And we'd rather be a little bit more concentrated We'd rather buy, pay a little bit of a higher price, but write a bigger check to make sure that we get that ownership uh, than take subscale ownership and hope that 10 billion is going to make it work for us. And so it's totally about internal consistency. Now, if you're managing a billion dollars plus, then $1 billion exit isn't going to move the needle for you. You're going to need to believe a certain different set of assumptions. And so the internal consistency, I think, is super, super important for a manager and for a seed manager. I think that 30 is not a high or a low price. 30 puts pressure on your model in different ways. So 30 could put pressure on your model in terms of how big of a check you have to write. 30 could put pressure on your model in terms of how many companies you can put into your fund. 30 could put pressure on your model in terms of how deeply you're going to reserve to protect your ownership in that company as it continues to grow. And so 30 is kind of inert as a number in and of itself, but in the context, it means everything. And so for us, we're not afraid of evaluation of any type. We just have to be very clear about what the constraints are for our model and how do we stay internally consistent. Going back to that thought of how do you play in today's world? And you know, you have a very clear model. We will make non-consensus bets on founders that don't fit the traditional consensus profile with regions that don't and maybe even in companies and the markets they attack are non-consensus that introduces at least the perception of higher risk. And how do you then underwrite to the risk levels of investing in non-consensus? Because it's easy to say, hey, look, I'm gonna go invest in a bunch of fintech companies because those fintech companies have probably an 80% chance of getting the follow-on funding and my markups are gonna look great. And eventually one of those companies is gonna be this massive outlier that could return a 3X to a 5X. And I wanna, talk about your model in two ways. So one is making non-consensus bets. What do you do to underwrite to mitigate the risk for the companies that you're investing, whether it's founder, whether it's company, whether it's market, how do you view it? And then second, let's talk about the portfolio construction because there is a growing proportion in the market that says that mathematically, and you know the people run these Monte Carlos, 20 to 25 companies that isn't enough necessary to have enough shots at goal to mitigate the risk of a failure. So let's attack the first aspect before you make an investment. So I see three types of risk that you can enter into with respect to making these types of investments. Uh, and when I say these types of investments, I mean seed stage, early stage investments. Uh, one of them is market risk as a function of your ownership. And so if you're in a hot sector, and you can only buy 4%, you have to hope that you're underwriting your 10 billion and that that's going to withhold and sustain. That's a huge risk. That might be a bigger risk than some of the other risks, depending on who you are and depending on your confidence. In the 
sort of non-consensus bucket, which we do. And to be clear, we'll do non-consensus and consensus. Uh, we just make sure to do a bit of both uh, because we think that it's really hard to build a fund in today's world as a seed investor on exclusively one of those. And so we can come back to that if you have more questions about that. But I think that if you're doing non-consensus, there's judgment risk, right? There's picking risk. And so do we have good judgment? Are we making sure we're avoiding adverse selection? Are we really challenging each other as partners to only choose the ones that we think are, are really special? And so the picking risk is, is a relevant one. But then the final one is a win rate risk. <laughs> and so if you decide to enter a sector or enter a segment where you're only going to adversely select the stuff you win, that's a huge risk too. And so if you feel confident that when you love something, you can win it, then that's a good guardrail to protect yourself against, you know, against exogenous risk factors, right? And so each one of those is a different kind of risk depending on how you enter. And we choose to accept a little bit of one or the other of those with every investment. And that's always very idiosyncratic. And so sometimes we say, we think that this thing could be 10 billion. And so we're okay with that. Sometimes we say, we think we've got unusually good judgment and nobody else likes this, but we like it for reasons that are unfair. Okay. And then other times we say, you know, we think that uh, we're going to uni like uniquely win this and not adversely select uh, because there's something about us that's going to make this founder think we're terrific. And each one of those is leaving some risk on the table, but it's a different shape of risk, right? And that's on a deal by deal basis. To the portfolio construction point, 20 to 25 is concentrated. It's totally concentrated. And many of uh, my seed peers are in the 35 to 45 range, uh, and some of them are in the 30 to 45 range. And we explicitly take a little bit more concentration than normal, which again is another vector of risk, but that's on the construction side, because we think that we can help. We genuinely believe that we can help. And there's an open question in the market as to whether any venture investor can help. And increasingly, the evidence is presenting that the median value add is probably zero. But we think that we can help. And we actually think that the fewer companies we do, the more helpful we can be. Uh, we think that the fewer companies we do, the more likely the ones that we do partner with, uh, we're really partnering with. And by virtue of partnering with them, can, you know, can impact their trajectory. And then finally, on the help piece, which is really important, the earlier you are with a company, no matter who it is, the more things they need help with from outsiders, because the fewer insiders there are, frankly. Uh, and so it's almost like a law. You take the absolute best founder in the world on day zero, that person needs help with everything. Uh, and so even the earlier that you go, the, you know, the higher impact your help can be. And I think that that'll positively affect win rate. It'll positively affect um, mutual selection. It'll positively affect valuation, right? So we want to go even earlier. So it sounds like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I want to take maybe the picking part for a second in terms of mitigating risk. By having a concentrated portfolio, by very nature, you have to be a manager that has a higher hit rate, where more of your companies have the opportunity to grow and scale. From my perspective, you know, you look at seed, there's very few inputs that you're really looking at. Um, there's not much to show for a lot of these companies. And a skeptic would say, it's very difficult to have an asymmetric formula for being a better picker at seed. How do you think about that from a mental model standpoint of saying, well, no, no, that's not actually completely correct. Here's a formula of how we do it that allows us to truly be good pickers, not just people that are you know, effectively spraying a bunch of darts around. The first answer is in today's market, if I had to choose between uh, picking somebody who seems thoughtful and smart and hasn't done anything and pricing that person at a $20 million valuation versus picking that person when they have a million dollars of revenue and paying $150 million valuation, I actually think my picking job might be easier in some sense uh, because I don't have an early false signal with a 10x multiple appreciation that I have to figure out how to underwrite for. And so I do think that seed is cues a little bit closer to sanity in today's market, which means that just from a pricing standpoint, I think the picking is easier. But to your point, I also think that there's a lot of false positives in underwriting a venture investment. 
and that plays out between C and A. It plays out between A and B. And I would imagine that it plays out beyond that as well. But how many really, really, really great investors over the course of history have made out-of-the-money bets at a C or at a B or at an A or at a C? There's constantly this opportunity where the market is mispricing some type of risk or misunderwriting the performance and looking for false positives. And we think that that's not necessarily that different in seed. And the data somewhat supports this, at least between seed and A. And so looking backwards, at least, I think it was Horsley Bridge had data that suggested that the loss ratios at A were hovering around 50%. And at seed, it was about 65. Yes, that's higher risk, but it's not dramatically higher risk. And in a world where the A is a $100 million valuation and the seed is half that at most and more like 20% of that, then all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the math starts to be a little bit more interesting. But what I'll talk about on the false positives to, to close this point, Samir, is when you've started a company and you've found a co-founder, you've built V1, and you've convinced two or three friends to start using it, a thin reading of the market will say, oh, this is a less risky investment. This is a better investment. I know you, and I could have underwritten within 20 seconds of our discussion that you could have found co-founders for Allocate, launched it, and convinced two people to join. And so once those things have happened, is that really a less risky investment? Is that a better investment? Or were those false positives? And I think there's a lot of false positive underwriting happening. And the same is true, actually, between A and B. I've talked to some of my you know, favorite mentors who, who invest a little bit downstream, and they'll say that the quality of the revenue makes much more of a difference between A and B than the quantum. And the growth rate is a good heuristic, but it's just a heuristic. And the context for that is so much more important. And so beware the false positive is how I sort of think about a framework for first, just proving that I can try and pick well. And then the second is I'm and my partner too. You know, we're intensely founder driven. And we spend a lot of time uh, thinking about a founder and how they handle adversity, how persuasive they are, uh, how formidable they are, how well they follow up. Uh, how much momentum they seem to generate, not just in their business, but around them. Are they gravitational? Do people just want to be near them? Do people want to just throw resources at them, right? And, and then that's something that one has a feel for. And I don't think that feel is evenly distributed across investors. But I think that that's something that we can improve and we focus on trying to improve. Yeah, well, it's important that you have a framework because I, I do think false positives happen. And they happen actually, you know, if you look at seeds to series A, there's tons of false positives where people are looking and saying, you know, this company truly has product market fit, but it's either manufactured or there's KPIs that actually don't mean anything about the viability of the business. And in today's world, those companies are getting a four to five X markup from that seed round, often six to 12 months after that seed round. And you sort of think about the risk return. And as a former banker, I think about everything from a risk return standpoint. And I look at seed. And I look at the casualty rate at seed to series A, it's exceptionally low today relative to what we've ever seen. In fact, in many cases, the best manager is 70 to 80% graduate to series A at a multiple step up, right? So it begs the question at the series A, why would you even invest there if you're an LP, given that you're paying five times as much for the same asset without a lot of risk being taken away? The thing that I struggle with a little bit in terms of risk right now is speed. In the old days, like you were able to spend some time in diligence and suss out was what was a false positive, a false negative, and actually get to observe these things that actually actually mitigated those risks away. And today, especially with the consensus bets, you just don't have the opportunity to do that. How important is the framework? And are there things that you, you've done to be adaptive to continue to build within that framework of how you mitigate risk away? but at the same time, move at a speed that today's entrepreneur needs? The first is our deal funnel. So it used to be the case, and you used to see this in old private equity PPMs where they'd say, I saw 5,000 companies and I ultimately ended up investing in two, which means I spent my whole year looking at 4,998 that I was never going to invest in. And, and that was like a badge of honor for a lot it of It was entirely a badge of honor. It was entirely a badge of honor. And that you'll still see that in PPMs. If you're listening to this, take it out. It's a bad metric. You're wasting your time. Uh, and so as a result, what we try and do is we try and take meetings 
proactively with a high degree of enthusiasm and confidence that we're going to learn something actionable or that we're going to potentially want to do quick diligence on that opportunity or else we shouldn't. And so our funnel has actually changed quite a bit. And it used to be leave it totally wide open and get coverage and use coverage as a way to do selection. And we no longer think of coverage in terms of our funnel and in terms of new first pitches. The second is we do partner meetings every day. And you know we do a check-in at the end of the day. And sometimes it's an informal check-in. Sometimes it's a meeting. We have, we have a couple calendar invites scheduled over the course of the week. But we're talking more often because every day it's, hey, what inspired you yesterday and why? And, and relating to both of these, what we do, what Steve and I do is we leave huge blocks of our calendar open. And it's not open in the, it's Warren Buffett, I'm going to read and walk on the beach and think deeply. It's open because I want to be able to spend four hours listen, like learning about low voltage power. I want to be able to spend four hours learning about KYC and fraud. Um, on a moment's notice, should I need to? And so the amount of diligence that we do doesn't actually change for us. When we're doing it changes dramatically. And frankly, it is hard. And so we've gone from, we're going to sort of trickle it in over time to we're going to do the whole thing as soon as we have an initial inclination of excitement about somebody. But we're going to call references. We're going to call off list. We're going to call on list. We're going to read about the market. We're going to talk to as many customers as we can. And we're going to try and do it the next day or the day after. And it's operationally hard, but it's not so hard that we can't do it, especially if you're cutting your funnel way down, especially if you're not sort of filling your deal time with a whole bunch of meetings that, you know, you're taking out of habit, right? And, and this is, and I'll, you know, I'll say something there that like the trajectory of a, of a venture investor, their first month, they're taking 25 meetings a week, right? Because they're like, I got to get coverage. I got to see everything. And then it might even go up to 40 because they're like, oh my God, the competition is so intense. But when you get deeper into your venture journey, that number goes down. And, you know, and for us, Steve and I, even in this period, that number has gone down rather than up because we're trusting our instincts so much more. We know we're not going to, we know we're going to miss great opportunities. We have to make sure that whenever there's a great opportunity that we see, we're perfectly prepared to process it, to have the space and the mental energy for it, but then to execute on it quickly. And so that's just a change in mindset and how you approach companies. Yeah, no, I love that. And you're right. I mean, I think that, you know, I was just looking at a deck where it was this massive top of the funnel and it was this acceptance rate that's really low. And it just speaks to a lack of quality of the funnel versus actually building a quality funnel where the type of deals that come to you are actually the ones that you want to see and the ones that actually make sense. And in fact, the best scenario, you see a small amount of deals and you do a large percentage of them because they are the ones that are absolutely aligned with how your strategy is. Moving to the next sort of, I would say, challenge in today's market is once you do the picking, you've done your diligence, you still have to win these deals. And in today's world, we are in a very efficient capital market. Capital today is more commoditized than ever. And so people look to differentiate with things like value add. And of course, there's so many memes on Twitter around how can I be helpful? You had a quote once that I think you heard from your mentor. And I might be misremembering it, but it, it went something like him describing a company and saying, they succeeded despite our best efforts. Explain what that means in the context of value add. How do you then think about true, authentic value add? So the first observation is that mentor said that trying to frame the humility of being a venture investor, and we're minority investors for a reason. If I were better at building and scaling businesses, I have two or three of them and I'd scale them as the, you know, as the Lord and commander of them all. But needless to say, I don't because I am actually a lot better supporting others and frankly, pay, playing a service oriented role as they grow. And for a really, really, really great, extraordinarily experienced, excellent reputation lawyer who's seen everything in the world to suggest that they're building a business 
on behalf of their client is kind of laughable, right? We're in a client service business. Uh, it's laughable. The best lawyer ever, the, the person who's going to save your case, the person who's going to save your business, protect all your downside, uh, would never say that because it would be absurd. And yet in venture capital, that became some sort of emotion. And I think it, in part because of the early days, venture capital was so scarce uh, that it sort of manifested that way. So that's the first reaction. The second reaction to your point about the value-added service meme, I feel like there's been a revealed preferences moment around founders that Tiger and their ilk have exposed. You know what's value-add? Being prepared and fast as evidenced by their extraordinary capacity to win. And, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a phase change from the prior value-added era of the platform. And I think the platform is still interesting, but the platform is clearly not the value-add that everybody's competing to try and develop today. It helps with creating a sales motion. And it, it is a tangible thing that you can bring to the table and say, here's how we help. Now, whether that actually happens, and, it, and I've, I've seen this over and over again, the most successful companies actually don't need it particularly as they get later and later. And so for Tiger and Co. too, you know, if they come into a Series B or C company that's actually tearing the cover off the ball, that, you know, the founder is not looking for strategic guidance from them. They are looking for capital. They are looking for somebody that fundamentally can move quickly and can help back up the truck later when more uh, gas needs to be uh, put on the fire, right? Hundred percent. Now here's and here's the rub, and here's where we come in. Is you know I usually will say to a founder, especially actually if it's a founder where I have my spidey senses tell me that it's going to be a competitive opportunity, I'll say to them, I'm probably not going to help you except for in two very important ways, and they are almost always like, "Excuse me, <laughs> what?" And I say, "I'm going to be a truth teller for you." First of all, as you can see. And that actually is really important. Having somebody who's going to be intellectually honest with you and who's going to challenge you truly and appropriately and reflect back to you exactly what kind of farmer you're acting like at any given moment is something that's really, really, really hard to get. There's almost nobody else who's a shareholder in your business that has an incentive to do that. And so it actually is a differentiated piece of value add. And then the second is when the going gets tough, I'm going to be there. And... Sometimes I'm going to be there with capital and we have a track record of doing that. And sometimes I'm just going to show up. I'm going to be early to that Zoom. And there's a whole lot of people who won't go to that Zoom. Suddenly they'll have so many calendar conflicts. There's a lot of VCs who will do that because it's not in their best interests to hang around the, 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 the companies that are going through rocky times. You know, we're in a winner's business. But a different mentor of mine said that your reputation is burnished in how you treat your losers. And I genuinely believe that. And, you know, I think even saying loser is, is an inappropriate way to frame it. Like, but those companies that struggle and the ones that struggle and get through it are going to be your champion in a way that nobody else possibly could and are going to generate more deal flow and more brand and more rep than anyone possibly could. And so some of the value add can be pretty easy and is psychological uh, if you think about it. And it's not necessarily I'm going to throw... B plus biz dev resources at you. I'm going to throw a recruiter that you could hire with our money at you. Uh, it's sometimes more like I'm going to be a true coach, which means I'm going to show up when you need somebody to pick you up. And I'm going to tell you the truth. I still struggle with people that don't get that fundamental belief of the long-term nature of this business. One, it's a long feedback cycle. If you raise three funds, it's 20 years in business. And everything compounds on top of each other, your reputation, your brand. And there's two things that matter to people uh, and what they'll always remember you for. Did you believe in them in early when no one else did? And then did you stay with them when they went through those inevitable challenges? And were you there? If a founder says to me that this GP is the first call I make when things aren't going right, I know that there's a really interesting viewpoint that this this GP has brought. And it's tough. I mean, like a lot of people are in this winner's game and the more this speaks to the portfolio construction too. It's even harder to do when you have 70 companies in a portfolio where each company is effectively just a line item versus something that is far more invasive into your own thought process every single day. And so 
I really like that viewpoint of of thinking about value add from a different lens than hey, I'm just gonna I'm gonna help you with sales and talents, and then if things aren't going well, those people aren't actually there to do those things. It's actually amazing. I think it plagues this industry far too often, which has been the introduction of these memes. As you think about it, then from a winning standpoint, have you found that? tactic that you've taken to actually be the most effective in helping you win because it is authentic and you're not overselling it versus some of these people that are actually creating platform teams, operating teams, which many of them are actually good people. And I think they're very well intentioned in adding value. And sometimes they do. What are you seeing right now thematically in terms of what is moving the needle in terms of winning? I think that approach works, but it's incomplete. And so the two other pieces of the puzzle that tie it together, and this may bring up another topic, which I'm happy to jump into, um, are, well, have you backed other things that are huge? And what do founders say about you? And so being able to have, and so when we have a, a really competitive opportunity where the founder has not yet done off-list references, we ask our founders to, to chat with them. And our founders will, will express a you know a pitch on our behalf in a way that we never possibly never could because they're going to express a context and they're busy and so for even for them to take the time out of their days to do that is i think demonstrative of the fact that that we have authentic relationship with them and when those references are off list and they come back positive that's literally the best feeling and why i do this to have an off list reference with a founder that results in winning a deal is a perfect true north uh, articulation of being a kindred spirit if i may uh, but the but the first one though let's talk about which is you know these days and this has been the case maybe as long as I've been in business almost everybody has a producing credit on that hit and on that hit and on that hit but who was really there who was really on the cutting board floor on the cutting floor with the director who was really there when they were when they were shooting right uh, and this idea of having durable long term relationships with enduring companies makes a big difference. Venture investor, comma, enduring company A, enduring company B, uh, is so important for winning. I can't tell you how often I took a really great pitch with somebody and we were vibing and it was like, this is going to go great. It was really competitive. And then they met my partner and they said, we're going to partner with you because Steve did Uber. <laughs> Simple as that. Uh, and so I don't want to undervalue that. And it's so important. And and it creates this virtuous cycle because, you know, especially if not just put a check into it, but was there, was in the gym shooting. And so how do you as a seed fund distinguish that? Because you're probably not staying on the board the whole way through. And that credit starts to become uh, a complicated thing to protect as these companies become enduring and more and more people start to attach their credit names you know, to that company's, you know, to that company's, um, you know, tape. And so what we try and do is we try and figure out ways to stay close and stay partners and stay on the same side of the table with companies into the series D and E, into the series F. I think it deeply and necessarily enhances our seed practice, especially in today's market. While you're going through that, it's a couple of things struck me. The first was as a new manager coming into the market, given all these competitive forces and the fact that things like what did you invest in the past are still material drivers of how founders make decisions, it speaks to the importance of picking a swim lane and being comfortable with non-consensus because those are areas where you're more likely to win. And I always talk about the swim lane. It's one of the things that's actually decayed returns for a lot of folks is they don't have a clear understanding of what their swim lane is, or they are artificially pushed out of that swim lane because they have money thrown at them from LPs. Maybe they've reached a modicum of success early, and the LP business model, particularly the endowments or the larger institutions, is I want to pump in more money to so raise more capital. And when you do that, you may be pushed out into a different competitive landscape in a comfort zone that no longer works. So how do you think about your own future growth 
And how do you maintain this model where you're, you're consistently staying in that swim lane? You're, you're not now deviating, which is almost assuredly going to put you in a different return profile that isn't going to be good. Yeah. So I call that uh, missing the forest for the fees. And it is indeed a, a, a historic plague in this business and is economically rational short term and maybe medium term for a GP. Because getting fat off of fees is not a terrible business model, but it's totally misaligned with LPs. And it's ultimately probably misaligned with founders too. So I agree that it is a problem. And this isn't the type of thing I'll usually say, but we turned down a significant amount of capital in our last fundraise because we, um, you know, we were fortunate to be, you know, in the market at a time where there was enthusiasm for what we were offering. And, but we knew what we wanted to do and we wanted to, have the flexibility to stick with it. Constraints can be freeing. And if you put some constraints on your model whereby you can just do the thing that you know how to do and continue to do it, uh, that can actually be very freeing. And so what I try and tell uh, you know, people who are in my peer set or you know, that, are, that are following in our wake is optimize for your personal happiness and constraints actually will really help with that. Because if you're constantly figuring out how to get into a business that you don't know how to do and you're backing your way into that, you're not going to be happy about it. Uh, for us, I totally agree with that and I think it's true. And I'll add two important caveats, one of which is the market is changing. The market, when, when my first startup, when we raised our Series A, uh, this was, I think, 2006 or seven. it was a, a five on 12. That's just not a series A. That's not even a seed in many cases today. And so if you stick to your knitting in a world that's completely changed, then you're going to be left behind. You have to be adaptive and intellectually honest about what the market is. And if the market is absolutely expressing a more expensive environment, uh, separating which of those cost increases and which of that inflation is healthy versus unhealthy is important. But you also have to be reactive to that. And you also have to be willing to move with that. And you can move down and or move out. And some of my you know, biggest admirers in venture were just like, you know what? I don't want to scale to keep up with this. I'm out of here. And they went down to Angel. They shrunk their fund sizes. And then others said, I need to compete. And so I do need to scale. And so I think there is an intellectually honest and rational reason for scaling. But it's such a fine line between that and the irrational, unhealthy, fee-chasing scale mentality, it's sort of like, you know, it's sort of a, it's a classic slippery slope situation. And so part of why I like to talk about it in public is to hold myself accountable. This is me leaving a time capsule for my future fundraise, right? For myself. And you guys spend a lot of time thinking about this. I, I know it. And you probably spend more time than most VCs being reflective of not only your own ethos, but where you have the best probability to produce for your LPs, but also your founders. And things will change. You know, what we talk about right now, I've had some incredible fund managers that said, we're not going to go over 50 million, but they recognize two things. They recognize number one, the markets changed significantly. And actually winning at that $50 million fund size was no longer possible for what they did. And number two, they had built an internal system and, and framework that actually was aligned with some level of scale. And it still made sense. The tough thing is reconciling that and figuring out where that line of demarcation is for yourself. And I suspect that's something that you guys as a partnership constantly are talking about. And I mean, another nuance to that, which plays out all the time too, but it doesn't get talked about that much, is sometimes uh, a fund manager invests in non-consensus because that's all they can do but they become good at that and then they start to see consensus opportunity. Now you tell me, but if I'm seeing a great opportunity and can win it of any type, I have an obligation to try my best at it. And so sometimes I actually see, and I, I think that even in, you know, in some of my, in some of the sectors where I've invested in some of my history, I've seen this happen for myself where I was choosing something unlikely in part because I was so unlikely to, I was competing on the main stage and having a fighting chance. And so I think that the honest reality of a lot of non-consensus investing, and not all of it, but a lot of it, is it's a circumstantial requirement, but that circumstance may change if you're good at it. 
And so being, you know, recognizing if you become good at that and how do you go back to knowing consensus or how do you say no to that amazing deal that's a little expensive, but that really wants you, you know, these are, these are not obvious problems, right? Yeah. These are such fun things to talk about. I mean, and you and I, I think are overdue for another, another one of those dinners over whiskey to talk about these things in even more detail off record. Yes, we are. But um, this has been a ton of fun. I have one last question for you, and it's related to the fact that you have had a lot of mentors and and investors that you've looked up to that have helped you along your journey. What's the most impactful thing that anyone has told you within the investing world that has really helped define you as an investor? There was one investment, and this was in the last two and a half years. There was one investment, which was something of an unusual investment, it kind of broke our portfolio construction, um, required more concentration, a different kind of check, a different kind of underwriting than we had been doing. And I asked a number of mentors how to think about the reserves. And I said, are reserves for defense or are reserves for offense? Do you use reserves to, you know, to pile into your winter when it's working or do you use reserves for winter? And one really, really thoughtful person said that they are for defense. And another really, really thoughtful person said that they are for offense. And the best piece of advice I ever got was, it depends on which kind of regret you're willing to live with. The regret of leaving money on the table or the regret of not doing what you thought you were going to do and not doing what you said to yourself you wanted to do. And so the idea of being internally consistent and living in a way that's consistent with my own desire for the future of myself is such a helpful frame for all of these questions. What kind of regret am I willing to live with? So what's your answer? Offense or defense based on that? Offense, baby. There you go. I love it. Love it. Well, this has been a ton of fun. Thanks for being on the show. We got to do a part two sometime. Absolutely. Always a pleasure, Samir. Thank you. And congratulations on all you've done. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Kanye. To learn more about him or Kindred Ventures, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show and my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.